This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey guys, it's Erica. Welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm so glad you're joining me today for this episode. Today's guest is someone that I put on my at the top of my list when I was brainstorming women that I wanted to bring on and talk to here. I met her right as the idea for Worth Your Time was getting formed in my head, and I thought she is somebody that I want to talk to. Her name is Jessica Holsey Nichols. She's the founder and president of the Addiction Policy Forum, and this is an organization that is so, so vitally important for our country's health right now. We have have, as you know, an addiction crisis that's running rampant, that's killing tens of thousands of people every year. And Jessica's passion for this policy issue runs very deep. She grew up um, as a child of two people that struggled with drug use problems. This is not just a policy issue. This is people. These are your friends, your neighbors, your brothers, your sisters, cousins, people that you know in your know in your life that you may not even realize have a problem. So today I just Jessica just opens her heart to us. She tells us her story. She tells us what we all need to know about how to deal with this, how to talk about it, how to love people, how to do better. She has such a beautiful um, voice and a beautiful passion for this issue that she really truly dedicates to her mother. Uh, so I, I just I encourage you to listen in with a, an ear for learning and hear what Jessica has to say because this matters. And so please enjoy this episode with Jessica Holsey Nickel. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm Erica, and today I'm joined by Jessica Holsey Nickel. She is the founder of the Addiction Policy Forum. And she's also a mom of three boys, and we met through an event that we participated in um, with the Independent Women's Forum, the Addiction Policy Forum, and the White House recently. Um, Jessica, you've been working in the field of addiction policy for over 25 years, which means you started at, what, the age of 15, something like that? I did. I did. That's the year I got involved. Yeah, so you've been doing this for a long time, and uh, your organization is really one of a kind. And you, I think, I believe you said you founded it because there was nothing like it out there. Um, but before we get into that, I would love to hear just a little bit about your background. Um, you, you overcame a lot of very tough circumstances um, in order to become a champion for those who are dealing with addiction. So what is your personal story um, and, and how did you become inspired to kind of take this on as your life's mission? So um, my family uh, has struggled with uh, addiction. So this is a personal issue for me. I lost both of my parents to heroin use disorder, um, which meant that the uh, sort of first ten of my life was a little unstable. Um, my uh, sister and I were homeless with our parents frequently, and in and out of foster care. Uh, my mom in prison, and my dad in and out of jail. Uh, we were eventually raised by our maternal grandparents, and um, I, I don't always know. I think some of this came from really my grandma. Um, she always tried to reinforce that um, my mom uh, had an illness, uh, so to hate the disease and, and not my mom and, and not the person who's struggling. Uh, and I sort of took all of those, um, you know, the difficulties and those those struggles and put it towards trying to help other people and focus on prevention and, and better treatment. Uh, so that's that's sort of how this the story began. My grandma always gave uh, uh, told the story that my first like drug talk was uh, my first uh, 
show and tell in kindergarten mm-hmm. where uh, I, I showed up to, to, uh, to my teacher, Mrs. Dean, and said I wanted to talk about heroin. And uh, she said, well, this is probably not age appropriate. So instead, I, I gave a talk about uh, good, bad, good medicines and bad medicines and why you shouldn't take medicines that aren't meant for you and um, uh, uh, sort of have one perspective there. So it's always been how I've chosen to translate some of the difficulties that my family has encountered as a result of addiction. Yeah, and you really overcame statistics in in what you've done with your life, um, just knowing that children of um, adults that are addicted are um, much more likely to become addicted themselves. So it's it's pretty amazing that you were able to, you know, go another direction. And it sounds like your grandma was really a big part of that. Yeah, she was a pretty amazing woman. Um, And I had lots of components that I needed that could help me sort of counterbalance all the risk factors that I came into this world with. She was one of them. The number of positive adults you have in your life can be a game changer. And um, my grandma was amazing. And my my grandfather was a stay-at-home dad. So there was this real stability that counterbalanced the instability that came before that. Um, I was involved in things that were healthy for me from church to sports to activities and the school newspaper. So, and then I found the, the work through uh, drug prevention and, and other activities. I had mental health therapy that was mandated when I came out of foster care. So we know that we need to respond to early childhood trauma with real behavioral health care. So I w- I'm so uh, blessed and grateful for the people and components that came into my life to give me a, a chance that was different from those that came before me. And so you spent some time living with your grandparents as well as being in foster care, right? I was in a long stint in foster care, um, thankfully, because that was pretty difficult. But uh, uh, we were placed full time with my grandparents uh, when I was starting when I was eight years old, and I was able to to be with them and have a bedroom and food, and I had a lot of food instability, so that was a really important thing for me. And we were able to, I think, have a chance at a normal life. That's awesome. I mean, I know that. Um Right now, I know we're dealing, we're in the thick of dealing with the opioid crisis, which we're going to talk a bit about um, on this, in this conversation. And I know that um, kinship care and grandparents taking care of kids and aunts and uncles, that's, that's really gone up because of the opioid crisis in, in the past couple of years. And so it just kind of goes to show you how important extended family is and, and, and how important those other adults are in your life. You're right. Um, I've certainly been inspired to, um, you know, try to be that person for others, uh, myself. Um, now you eventually, um, not only were able to, to overcome the statistics in terms of addiction, but you also eventually went to Princeton. Um, where, how did that end up happening for you? What made you want to go to Princeton? Um, that's, you know, obviously a, a huge achievement and accomplishment to go to such a, such a wonderful school. So give us the backstory on how, how that all happened. So it's a it's a f- interesting story. Uh, so I'm I'm the first person in my immediate family to graduate high school. So um, I knew I wanted to go to college, but uh, you know I I've, I had I don't think I'd ever thought of sort of an Ivy League school as being a possibility until I was giving a presentation um, through one of the uh, anti drug nonprofits that I was involved in as in high school. I gave a talk at a United Way event. And a Princeton alumni um, approached me afterwards, and um, he was involved in the cause and uh, did a lot of amazing work in our county, and he encouraged me to apply to the school. So I did, 
um, probably at first to sort of, you know, respond to what he asked me to do. I don't think I ever, uh, it ever occurred to me that, that they would actually let me in or it was a possibility. <laughs> um, and so, and I, I also sort of, uh, applied to schools, um, you know, kind of on my own. Cause it's, you know, it's a little scary for a family that's never had access to this. Um, when you are first generation college, it, it it's, a um, it's a lot to take in. Uh, so I applied and I, I got in and, um, you know, it was this sort of real, uh, amazing moment that opened a lot of doors, uh, for me, both professionally and personally, uh, lots of growth. And, uh, I had never visited the school. Uh, so I accepted sight unseen and showed <laughs> up first day and just sort of figured my way out. And I'm really grateful for the opportunities it afforded. What was it like going there? Because I'm sure you were in the minority in terms of your background. Did you feel, could you feel that, um, very palpably as a student? You know, I, I think a student, as a student before college and, and high school and middle school, um, sometimes it was very difficult. Uh, my family's history would sort of be, you know, be known and, and I was kind of other or mm-hmm. there was stigma that uh, gets attached to all of us that are affected in a family, not just the person who struggles themselves with an addiction. So uh, I'll never forget, I, I was in high school and I was dating a boy and I came to school one day and uh, he told me he had to break up with me because his mom had found out about my family and she had uh, proclaimed that uh, he didn't, she didn't want him to be around me because the apple never falls far from the tree. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's this real um, sense of being other and a little bit of an outsider when you're a kid that comes from a family like mine. Uh, so I, I've showed up to college maybe with a little bit of that, you know, un, you know, uh, uh, insecurity or not knowing uh, how you make this work or answer the questions or, you know, this, this, uh, very sort of benign question that gets asked, Hey, so what do your parents do? That's for me is, a uh, um, how do, how do I approach this one? But I soon found that though, um, the backgrounds were very different and such sort of this diversity of folks I got to meet. Um, I, I found a, a lot of amazing friends and professors and folks that were at the school itself that were very supportive of me and, um, really built the, built this amazing network and constellation of, of friendships. Um, I know I, I recently watched your um, one of your videos t- uh, testifying before Congress, I believe, and you mentioned in there that you have lost six family members to addiction diseases. Um, can you talk about what does it feel like to be the person that's left behind in those situations and is left dealing with the aftermath of such horrific circumstances? You know, um, you know, addiction runs in families and we pass it along to the people we love the most. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't talk as frequently about um, really how this took a generation out of my family. Mm-hmm. So the, being left behind is it's a little lonely. Um, you know, we, we have uh, uh, not a big table for Thanksgiving and Christmas and, um, and holiday events. And, and that's really because of uh, the long-term health consequences of, of addiction. I lost both my parents and my grandfather and uh, two uncles and an aunt to this disease. And it, uh, it affects everyone that is, is in our family and is uh, trying to sort of fill those holes. And you kind of alluded to this earlier when you said your grandma, you know, said it's not your mom's fault, it's a disease. Um, and I, and I notice, um, lately, you know, you don't, you do not say, you do not say addict, you say someone has heroin use disorder or alcohol abuse disorder, or it's always in those terms rather than this person is an addict. 
Can you talk to us about why this kind of wording matters so much? Yeah, so language matters. Um, When we say a person or an individual with a substance use disorder or an alcohol use disorder, we are reminding not just ourselves, but them that they are a person first. And we are trying to build the services and the resources that they need to get better. Um, When you say words like addict that are stigmatizing, it takes the person out of it. It is identifying or or defining them by a disease that they're struggling with. And we know from the research that uh, stigmatizing language can dissuade people from seeking help. It can dissuade families from reaching out and letting others know uh, that this is something in their family that they're really having troubles with. And I think we need to just change that. We need to change not just the language of talking about the people and the, the real people and neighbors and moms and dads and, and you know, uh, sons and daughters that are at the epicenter of this adip- uh, epidemic. Uh, and talk also about how we as community members could be um, uh, better in this. How where, Where's the casseroles and the platters of cookies and the sign-up ch- genius to um, help a neighbor who has a kid who's struggling with this. We need to change our compassionate response to all families that um, are going through this. Why do you think people are resistant to calling addiction a disease? I know some, you get that, you get that pushback. Um, do you, do you get that a lot? I do. You know, not very long ago, I was actually at a a carpool pickup and I was picking up my son from school and he had a, a new friend and a new family that had moved into the neighborhood and uh, fourth grade, and uh, we were chatting about, you know, family and our kids and, and work, and I mentioned what I do. Um, I help patients and families struggling with addiction and run a nonprofit. And, and this mom's response was, you know, very emotional, but, you know, that, that this was not a disease, this was a, a decision, this was a moral failing. Mm-hmm. So I think in, instead of being really critical, about half this country still doesn't understand this as a health condition. Mm-hmm. Um, But that has improved greatly over the last five years. So I think if we take the time to explain um, the science and we explain um, how this is a health condition and how it uh, affects the brain and how it can be treated, that's how we build compassion and we change minds and opinions. Yeah. And you talk a lot about how important it is to get prevention measures out there young, as young as possible because of the way you know, the science and the chemistry behind the way our brains work and how addiction is actually formed the younger you are, um, you know, you start taking these kinds of substances. So so tell us a little bit about that work that you've done. So prevention is so important. I mean, in any other disease we've responded to, it's not just about figuring out how to intervene quicker and, and assess to see if, if, you know, if someone is, is, has this illness and make sure they can survive it and come up with vaccines or antibiotics or treatments or medicines. We also prevent the number of people that come into that patient space in the, in the first place. And that is what we need to focus on when it comes to addiction as well. Addiction is a pediatric disorder. Mm-hmm. 90%, and this is such an amazing statistic to me, of everyone who has an addiction began using substances in their adolescent years. Wow. And the the earlier that you use substances, um, the easier it is to develop an addiction. When you begin using, you know, between 12 and 16, you have a one in four chance of developing a substance use disorder. But if you push that after the age of 25, when the brain is fully developed... 
that number changes to one in 25. So we need to do a better job of telling parents, of telling adolescents themselves, pediatricians, teachers, educators, um, everyone who comes in contact with adolescents, that age matters and that delaying the initiation of alcohol um, in particular, which is what people tend to, to start experimenting with, is critically important for brain development and for long-term health. Mm -hmm. That's Yeah, that's so important. Um, how else do you see the stigma side of things playing out in a harmful way? Um, maybe you have like maybe you have an example of a, a family that you've worked with, or or someone that's been through that um, dealing with the stigma from maybe family members or community members and that kind of a thing. You know, so the the thing with stigma is that. Um, it, it prevents people from getting the help that they need. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, we know that there's stigma in our healthcare system, um, and, and there's also reasons why that exists. Uh, our patients are not always uh, super well behaved, and that you know is a reality because of the changes in their brain on decision making and where their survival hardwiring is. So we need to better do a better job of um, training our nurses, our doctors, our healthcare professionals. Um, about the nuances of addiction and how it impacts the brain and how to effectively intervene and communicate with someone with an addiction. Because if you you know, walk into an emergency room uh, or to a physician's office and you disclose that you have a substance use disorder um, and then you don't get met with uh, the type of language and response that makes it feel like a safe place to reach out for help, then you are going to withdraw and not seek help in that moment, which is the opposite of where we should be going. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Now, you've worked with uh, several presidents on this issue, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and I, I don't know how much you're um, involved with the administration now, but what does it mean to you to be working on these issues at such a high level? And did you ever imagine that you get to a place where you're making such an impact um, in this way? You know, I, I, it's such an honor to be able to work with, um, you know, each of these administrations on this issue. Uh, I think it has been um, heartwarming to see uh, so many of our uh, electeds make this a priority. Um, you know, we held a uh, forum on addiction issues for uh, the presidential candidates and, and um when President Trump uh, came to that event, you know, sharing his brother's uh, struggles with uh, alcohol use disorder um, mm -hmm. and talking about the importance of prevention and treatment uh, it, as a family member to see um, uh, our, our own uh, uh, sort of leaders in this country uh, really invest time and energy and resources to making this a priority is, um, is a bit of a dream. And we're really grateful for that. In terms of... Uh, you know, sort of getting to do this work, um, I kind of tend to always feel like I've never done enough um, mm. because the need is so great. Um, I hope my mom and my grandma are proud. And that's mm -hmm. sort of what the what the hope is at the end of the day. I always uh, tell folks and try to explain this work as, you know, the Addiction Policy Forum is the love letter I write to my mom every day. Uh, and I don't think that love letter will ever be finished. Mm. Man. So was your mom, um, did she, was she fighting to overcome? So my mom actually found recovery, which is a, a beautiful gift. Um, yeah. She uh, was arrested again. Uh, and I, you know, I was probably around 10 or, or so, 10 or 11. And instead of going back to jail, 
this uh, judge offered her a different option, treatment in lieu of jail time. Uh, and it was a different kind of treatment. She went to a methadone program, so she was able to get the medicine that she needed to treat her illness. Uh, and she also had long-term recovery support. And the, the program that they put her in was actually for Native Americans, which was uh, a game changer for her. So she was able to to find the support that she she needed. And so she got a job and was in treatment for a bit. And I uh, was able to stabilize, and um, we really uh, reconnected uh, when I became a mom, uh, and were able to rebuild that relationship and become very close. She um, helped me raise my my little ones um, when I had my my first two uh, boys, and was so incredibly close with them. And I also think that being a mom made me sort of have an extra level of compassion for all that addiction took away from her. Mm -hmm. uh, she missed so many of these things. And it was also a reminder to me about how, how powerful addiction is when it can um, override what I think is the most fundamental thing that I have in my life, which is that drive as a mom to protect and take care of my boys. Uh, and so it really brought us together in this, this beautiful way. And um, unfortunately, she had a heart attack when she was 50 because of the, the long-term health consequences. Mm -hmm. um, and so I lost her way too soon, but I, I wouldn't trade in those four years we had together for anything. Oh, now I feel like I'm going to cry. <laughs> oh, that's really beautiful. Um, so speaking of your boys, um, what's something that you want to teach them? What, what is it that you're teaching them about this, um, this work that you do and about their futures and the decisions that they're going to make? You know, I'm uh, I'm pretty proud of them, and uh, also sometimes surprised. Their, their kids are such amazing little sponges that they have picked up so much more about this issue than uh, I, I would have imagined. Um, I try to teach them uh, very basic things as a, a, a primary focus. That uh, addiction runs in my family. I love them, and I also have passed on to them a genetic predisposition and risk that they will then pass on to their own children. So we talk about uh, how uh, they're going to have to be smarter and make different decisions than some of their friends. They know that the age of initiation is critical. They know that it is important to protect their brains. Um, we talk about this frequently. Um, one really important thing for parents is talk early and often. That conversation changes, but don't don't uh, shy away from talking about the topic. And even simple things, like every time I have a glass of wine in their presence, it's an opportunity for me to do a little like pep talk and uh, primer uh, pop quiz on uh, alcohol and, and brain development. Because, um, you know, when I say, so uh, just a little quick one, why, why can I drink this and <laughs> you can't? And my teenager's like, mom, I know this, honestly. And I'm, he's like, because I have an adolescent brain and you have a grown-up brain and my brain is still um, in the works and it can be harmed more easily than yours. Yeah, I think that's a conversation that most people are not having in their houses about alcohol. I mean, it, just even remembering my own childhood, it was never about that. It was just always like, oh, you're not supposed to do this. This is bad, like, because you're a teenager. You know what I mean? But without the foundation or the understanding behind why. And I think that can make all the difference. And if you, yeah, if, if you can't answer the whys, then we haven't given people, teachers, parents, the skills that they need to do this. And the why is there. Why can't I drink till I'm 21? Well, because girl brains grow up at 22 and boy brains at 25. So you need to be really careful about the things that you introduce before it's fully developed. We have the information. We have the science. We just need to do a better job of teaching parents on how they can get that out there. And we did develop a parent toolkit on how you can 
talk about this and bring prevention into your home. And it's it's available for free to anyone to, to download and includes a video explainer. And that's at addictionpolicy.org. So any of your folks listening, uh, uh, they should learn a little bit and, and start implementing some of these pieces because it's never too soon. Yeah, I will we'll link that in the show notes for sure. And I know, I think, I want to say I had an op-ed come out last week and I, I'm pretty sure we linked it in there. So we'll make sure to link all of that stuff. Um, awesome. Now, in terms of what's going on right now, obviously the opioid crisis, in, you know, in particular, has gotten tons of attention in the past couple of years. Um, do you think there are strides being made? the The package was just passed, signed by President Trump. The big package that was passed almost unanimously by the House and Senate. Are you happy with that? And um, where do you see there could be improvement? So the HR6, the opioid package, um, was such an important piece of legislation. We are so grateful that the House and Senate came together, the president signed this, and we have new resources and tools that are available as a result. Some of the things that are so important about this bill in particular is that it truly treats addiction like a disease. Mm-hmm. It, it, it changes um, Medicare and Medicaid uh, components to make sure that our healthcare system has the tools and resources to respond to an illness and I, I think that is so incredibly important, and I think it's an it's a, um, important step in the right direction. I think that we have done a much better job of starting to incubate the innovations that we need. There's so much amazing work that is happening on the ground in almost every community uh, in this country. And uh, we, we focus at Addiction Policy Forum on highlighting our innovators and the, the things that are working. Um, instead of just talking about the the statistics and the things um, that we're worried about, because we need to be implementing the right responses that can help communities address this, uh, and and the number of programs, the creative ways that we're addressing this and prioritizing this, we're seeing innovations from police. Uh, to healthcare systems, to emergency rooms, to schools, uh, to prosecutors, to public health. And I think that's that, that kind of creativity and unity to address this issue that is going to be a game changer in the long run. In yeah. terms of the, the thing mm-hmm. that's wrong is mm-hmm. we have a couple of high priorities, including how can we do a better job um, uh, uh, identifying who the bad actors are in the, on the treatment side and making sure that families, consumers have the tools that they need uh, to um, to find the right treatment. Like right now, the first 83 pages of Google are bad actors and patient brokers. When mm. we tell a mom that this is what good treatment looks like, this is what your child needs to address this disease, there's nothing more powerful than a well-informed mother. And that's how <laughs> we start to change the trajectory. That's interesting. I just was talking to a guy yesterday. I don't know if you would know him. His name is Dave Chase. Um, but he was, he was emphasizing to me the role of mothers as well. And just talking about how important that is, um, as women leading the way, at least in, at one aspect of this. So that's, I'm, I'm all for that idea for sure. Um, so what else, um, is there anything else that, what what could listeners do to help? Like what could an average person do if they want to be like, I want to help in some way, what could they do? You know, um, start at home, focusing on if you are a mom, it doesn't matter if you have a four-year-old or a 14-year-old or a 40-year-old, making sure that you have the right information and messages um, to to talk about alcohol, to talk about marijuana, to talk about substance use disorder, to talk about opioids, to make sure that we are clear with our expectations 
um, and we are listening and paying attention and, and have the resources that we need. Um, I think looking at our circles around us as women, when we are um, looking for um, our friends and our coworkers and um, people at church and in our uh, lunch break room to make sure that we're reaching out uh, with compassion with folks that are struggling with this disease um, and offering to bring those casseroles and those uh, plates of cookies and brownies and stop by and walk the dog. Um, that That's how we show that we understand this is a health condition and that we are responding as a community in a, in a different way than we have previously. And I think for the policy side and using your voice and advocating to get involved, to, to show that this is a priority and that we are pushing to for different outcomes in a different way fundamentally that we treat this illness um, would be so incredibly important and, and would welcome everyone at the table with us. And have you been able to um, see some success stories along the way, people that have overcome or families that have been able to really, um, I guess, break the cycle? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have um, families and, you know, even within uh, our organization, we started a telehealth line and a resource center with a website and patient portal. It's called the Addiction Resource Center. Uh, and we are able to provide the support and counseling and the clinical social workers that uh, help uh, individuals and families build the treatment plans that they need and follow up. Uh, so we have all these stories, this collection of um, uh, of thank you notes and love letters uh, about uh, people finally finding uh, that uh, supportive uh, voice and, and the network that is going to, to back them up. Um, on their darkest day and instead of stigma or, or isolation. And, and that's what keeps us, uh, you know, working on this issue and, and trying to do better um, every single day. All right. Well, thank you so much for answering all those questions. I do want to switch gears for the last part of our interview to some fun stuff, um, which I sent you. I don't know if you had a chance to look at those questions. I did. That's so nice. Okay. Yeah. It's just kind of fun to get to know people on a more, a little bit more of a personal level. Um, so the first question for you is, do you have a book, a TV show or a podcast you could recommend to our audience right now? So it's hard to choose between all of those. You can pick I, one of each if you want. <laughs> okay. So I, um, I, I'm a bit of a bookworm, so, mm -hmm. uh, there's never enough books Same. and never enough time. Um, you know, some of the, the ones that, um, I love in, um, this, this, uh, this issue area, um, you know, are sort of heartbreaking from, you know, the glass, uh, castle to, mm -hmm. to others, uh, but other books that I, I really love in the fiction area are like The Art of Racing in the Rain. Oh, yeah. I've read yeah. that one. Yeah. I, I love that book. Uh, particularly, it's it's such an interesting uh, narrator. And yeah. it's, it's a, an interesting way about like sometimes um, how we respond to things that we uh, can't control or or that are unexpected are, are sort of how we make or, or break um working on an issue. So I, I think that has been helpful and just a, a beautiful read. Um, in terms of TV shows, I am a big Game of Thrones fan. <laughs> I don't know. There's something about the princess with the three dragons that uh, I just uh, can't get enough of. So I'm mother very excited. Mother of dragons. <laughs> exactly. My, my kids got me a mother of dragons uh, a t shirt for, uh, for oh, my birthday. Or and something. you have three. So that works. I do. Is it coming? Boys. It's not back on yet, is it? 
I think it's coming out next year, and I'm pretty they, fired they up about it. They make you wait for so long between seasons. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> Any other TV shows? Um, you know, I probably read more books than I, yeah. I watch uh, on the TV show side, but uh, I am a huge Shameless fan. Oh, um, yeah. Me too. We watch that over yeah. here. Yeah. I think sort of uh, tackling... Uh, alcohol use disorder mm -hmm. and uh, all of the effects on the family is just, it's just a beautifully done show. So it's definitely my favorite. Yeah. It's really, I mean, you really don't see, I mean, I can't think of another show that would be comparable in terms of spotlighting a family like that, you know? I know it's, it's just amazing. Um, okay. And next question would be um, if you could have brunch with one celebrity, who would it be and why? So I would really like to have brunch with Ellen. Yes, she'd be great. <laughs> what like, do you love what, about her? <laughs> so at, like every day uh, when it's like a tough day, like, the, you know, the issue is tough. The, the topic is tough, you know, working with families who've lost a loved one. And I sort of find myself just watching the Ellen show or Ellen clips because she's just like, you know, so happy and, and uh, uh, joyful um, and, you know, great sense of humor. And, and, uh, I, I, I love watching the, the clips of the show. So I would definitely sign up for brunch with, with Ellen DeGeneres. Yeah. I do not watch enough of that. I wish that I, I need to like get it on my list of things. Um, okay. It's your last meal on earth. What do you have? Well, it's a toss up between French fries and chocolate chip cookies <laughs> or both, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you there. Okay. This would be my, my favorite things. Um, I, I probably should have scooted this one up more in the interview, but I'm always interested to know what's something that you do every day, like a, maybe a healthy habit or something that really keeps you on track or makes you feel like, you know, you're going to be productive today. Uh, so I try to do yoga every day oh, okay. um, or some type of, uh, physical exercise because it seems to, um, you know, keep me motivated and make sure I have the energy and I'm taking care of my um, health and my body while I'm trying to take care of everyone else. Uh, so that's always a high priority for me. Uh, and I also try to read every day. Mm -hmm. I think sort of having and carving out that, that time, um, is critically important and, and, uh, probably third on that list would, would be quality time with my boys. Um, you know, balancing work and being a mom, but making sure that I have a, a really significant amount of time where I am present with them mm -hmm. um, and I don't have the TV or my iPad or a phone or a lot going on, but just really uh, present in, in what's happening with them. Everything from just family dinner together and we'd like do a, a high low uh, thing every night or mm -hmm. tell me your high and your low of the day and um which we've continued for a, a long time and is so important so that other thing is how how, how much of my day was I present with them and, and making sure that uh, that's always a priority Well, if you made it to the end, thank you so much for tuning in today and checking out this conversation with Jessica. I know that I learned a lot, especially about the way that we talk about people with addiction issues and how we need to really keep the humanity and the face of who they are at the forefront rather than the problem that they're dealing with. Um, if you've never dealt with an addiction issue, then you have no idea what kind of 
uh, battle that someone is facing. And so I hope that you learned and took something from that. If you've been enjoying the Worth Your Time podcast, please open up your um, podcast app on iTunes. Go ahead and leave me a rating and review. It would mean so much. I have 25 reviews. I would love to see that number tick up to like 30 this week. So um, please think about it. Um, We'll see you next Tuesday. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.